I want to invite you to uh, take a copy of God's Word and turn with me once again to First uh, Peter, First Peter chapter one. Uh, we're continuing to work our way through First Peter, verse by verse, section by section together. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 21. While you're turning there, just let me remind you uh, what we've looked at most recently. We, we saw that verses 3 through 12 are really one long sentence in, in Greek where Peter is really celebrating the, the privileges that we have in the gospel, that God the Father has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we've been born again to a, to a living hope and uh, a perfect inheritance and a salvation that's being kept in heaven for us, ready to be revealed at the appearance or revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and then in uh, verse 13, Peter, Peter turns to the, the, the therefore, the, the so what of uh, being the recipients of such marvelous grace. And so last time we talked about three imperatives, three commands that Peter gives to Christians who are called to to live as obedient children, who call upon God as Father. We saw those, those three commands are to set our hope fully on the grace that is to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to be holy as God is holy in our whole lives And uh, we are to live in godly fear throughout the time of our exile here. Now, I think uh, it's almost as though Peter anticipates maybe some ways we could distort that last imperative about the fear of God. He, He knows that people might be prone to read into that all sorts of misunderstandings and distortions and wrong conclusions. So, So we need to understand Peter is not trying to, to shatter Christian assurance here by talking about uh, the fear of the Lord. And so very quickly in verses 18 through 21, notice what he does. He, he takes us to the cross of Jesus Christ and has us think about the redemption or the ransom that is ours by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what he really is after here is He wants us to understand that godly fear, which is really at the heart of a life of obedience to God, is is not opposed to assurance of Christ's redeeming work. Instead, he wants us to understand that knowing how you have been ransomed, knowing how you've been redeemed and loved by God in Christ is actually what produces godly fear. You see, living in light of Calvary produces godly fear in the Christian life. We think, how, how's that work? Well, here's, here's how that works. When you look at the cross as a Christian, what do you see? Well, one of the things you see is God, the impartial judge... Peter speaks about God the Father earlier as the impartial judge. And you see him dealing with sin. You see him judging sin. My sin, your your sin. 
We see him pouring out judgment, though, not on me and not on you, but on his son, who was without sin. And so we see when we look at the cross, how on the one hand, how seriously God takes our sin and what it costs to redeem us, nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As Paul says, he did not spare him, but delivered him up for us all. And what Peter is saying is, and so we fear. In this sense, we we shrink back from treating sin lightly in our lives. We shudder at the thought of playing fast and loose with remaining sin in our lives. But what else do you see when you look at the cross? Not only do you see the the justice of God. Well, of course, you also see the love of God being revealed, don't you? In this, the love of God was revealed in that while we were yet sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. You, You see how much the judge of all the earth is also your loving father who cares for you so much that he would give his one and only beloved son to ransom you at the cost of the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. And so, again, you live in fear, trembling at the thought of betraying such amazing love, casually trampling it underfoot. So you see, Peter, what he's after here is he's teaching us that godly fear is produced by the gospel, by the revelation, the manifestation of the the justice and the mercy of God, which kiss at Calvary. The gospel, we need to understand, does not produce what what we might call a a slavish fear. right? This this fear that's rooted in a view of God that he is most fundamentally, basically wrathful towards me and he's just waiting to come down on me. That's That's a slavish fear. What Peter is helping us understand is actually what the gospel produces is what some have called Filial fear. The the fear of the children of God who who know how much and how they have been loved and are loved in Christ Jesus. And so they do not want to betray such love by a life of casual disobedience. And so you see, Peter, he's helping us understand here that the gospel is not opposed to what the Bible speaks about in terms of the fear of of the Lord. It is, in fact, I think this is the right way to think about it. The gospel is, in fact, the soil out of which the fear of the Lord sprouts and matures. And this isn't a fear of uncertainty, thinking that perhaps one, God, one day God might condemn you. Remember, Paul teaches us that's actually an impossibility. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that there is now no condemnation. There's no wrath left for those who are in Christ Jesus because it was exhausted on the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's tree. But there is a proper, there is a right fear of the Lord that knows who he is and what he has done to ransom his people from sin and futility. A fear that Peter is saying here actually leads to an altered way of life. A fear that matters for how we conduct ourselves throughout the time of our exile. 
Now, all of that is just to orient us to what Peter is up to in these verses. So let's turn and read our text for this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll pick it up in verse, actually verse 17, because that's where the sentence begins, but we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 21. So starting in verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter, God's word, wants us this morning to to gaze upon what we'll call the, the diamond of our redemption. And he wants us this morning to appreciate one dimension of our redemption that perhaps is underappreciated by Christians today. And I want to suggest to you this morning that better appreciating this aspect of our ransom through Jesus Christ will, will encourage what Peter is after here, the fear of the Lord that matters for how we conduct ourselves in this world. So I want us to think this morning about four things, four things related to the ransom that God has provided for us. First of all, what we've been ransomed from, that's, that's verse 18. Um, then second, what we've been ransomed with, that's verses 18 and 19. Uh, verse, or thirdly, who we've been ransomed by, that's going to be verses 19 and 20. And then fourth and finally, what we've been ransomed for in verse 21. Okay, so, so what we've been ransomed from, with, by, and four. Let's start, let's start with the first thing here. What, uh, what we've been ransomed from. And notice, first of all, I want to make sure this connection is, is settled in our minds. What I was talking about a moment ago. Notice the connection between verse 17 and verse 18. Now here, here's the connection. Knowing you have been ransomed produces a life of reverent fear of God. You see that? Look at the second half of verse 17. Paul, Peter says, conducting yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. In other words, knowing that you were ransomed goes hand in hand with how you live in this world as a Christian. Knowing how you were, were redeemed by God's grace has implications for how you conduct yourself throughout this pilgrim life. Now, to, to appreciate what this means, we all need to know, first of all, what, what we've been ransomed from, right? What is the, the nature of, actually, the imagery that, that should be in our minds here, because P Peter's using this language of, of, 
of ransom, sometimes translated redemption. This, this was uh, a word that found its way into the, sl- the slavery markets of the Greco-Roman world. So one of the questions we should be asking ourselves is, what, have we, what slavery have we been redeemed from, ransomed from? Right? Here's where I think Peter's helping us to admire a, a different dimension of the wonder of Christ's redeeming work. If I were to ask you this morning, you know, what, what do you think of when I ask you, what has Christ redeemed you from? Or for those of you who care about English, from what has Christ redeemed you? Right? I think most of us would say, well, Christ has redeemed me from, from, from sin. Right? As, a, as a sinful person, uh, I'm, I'm guilty before God, and I'm corrupt in my whole nature, my whole person. I'm a, apart from the grace of God, I'm a slave to sin. And so I am inexcusably guilty before God and hopelessly corrupt to do anything good before God or to commend myself to God. And so I need, I need a redeemer who can rescue me and, from the guilt of my sin and reconcile me to God, and I need a Redeemer who can rescue me from sin's power that I might walk in newness of life. And amen to all of that. That's certainly what the Bible was talking about when it's talking about the redeeming work of Christ. But, and you knew a but was coming, that's not Peter's focus here. At least it's not his immediate focus here when he's talking about our being redeemed or ransomed. So what's he thinking about here? Uh, he, he wants us to appreciate another dimension. Take a look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So part of redemption is, is being released from, rescued from, by back from feudal ways of living. Empty ways of life. Ways of life that are ultimately vanity. Maybe maybe they appear to have some substance and value and worth. But in the end, Peter is saying, they're useless. I think what Peter is, is talking about here is so important for us to understand. The word he uses that's translated, if you're using the ESV, the word translated inherited is actually a a common uh, cultural Greco-Roman word that we could probably better translate as uh, an ancestral way of life or ancestral ways of life. In in the Greco-Roman world, there was a widespread, widely accepted, culturally normative, standard, venerated, respected way of life. It's the way you were expected to live if you were a citizen in the Roman Empire. And what's Peter have to say about it? He says it's, it's not only useless, it's something that we need to be rescued from. Isn't that interesting? So what Peter is saying here is that these widely accepted, culturally normative Venerated ways of life are, in the end, useless. They're they're futile. They're empty. And and Peter is thinking here, he's looking at how people, we could say, are living 
religiously or irreligiously. And, and he's seeing these ways of life as, you know, in the eyes of people, the, the thing that holds a society together. And here's Peter saying, this way of life is something that you need to be saved from. Something you need to be rescued from. Now, why would that be? Well, because of, because of this. Because any way of life that's centered on self and severed from God is doomed to futility. It's subject to vanity. Think about it. If we were made by God and we were made by God for God, then the only way of life that isn't ultimately destined for futility in the end is a life that is ordered by God and a life that is ordered to him. Not not a God of our imagination, but the God who is, the God who is the the source and sustainer and end of all things. But you see, people and cultures, and perhaps we ourselves at times, are in the business of erecting false realities to make sense of the world that we live in. And people are in the business of passing these things down to others. This is what Peter recognizes here. These feudal ways of living were inherited ways. They, they got it from their forefathers. It was simply in the air that they breathed. It was in the culture which they lived in as they grew up. Now, do you think about that? Isn't that the way so many of us still experience things today? How we're shaped and formed intellectually and spiritually and morally, apart from God's rescuing, redeeming grace, we simply soak up the surrounding spirituality, uh, the prevailing morality of our times. Uh, we, We become like, perhaps, the people nearest and dearest to us. And in Paul's terms, what we're really doing is we're exchanging the truth of God for a lie and we worship created things rather than the creator. Peter is teaching us that in every age and every society, every culture, there are going to be spiritualities, uh, religions, worldviews, ways of life that Peter mentions here. That are, that are vying for your allegiance. Saying to you, we offer answers. We offer stability. We offer explanations. We offer meaning and, and purpose. We offer freedom. Peter says, every way of life constructed by man, severed from God, is subject to futility. And dear friends, it's this endless cycle of a life lived in futility and emptiness, a life in the pursuit of what in the end is vanity, that Peter says God rescues his people from. You can just think about some of the ways of life that are predominant in our culture today, right? A a way of life that says, look, life is all about the, the pursuit of wealth and possessions and resources. That's the way to live a happy, meaningful life. A a way of life that says, look, you are fundamentally a consumer. 
So what you do is you spend your days going from one thing to the next, constantly looking for the next best thing, hoping to find some kind of temporary satisfaction before you need to move on. Or a way of life that, that's, that says, uh, basically, life's all about having fun and a good time. And so what do you do? Well, you, you work as a, as, a, as a necessity so that you can indulge yourself on the weekend and seek to live your best life now, hoping that the fun on the weekend will help you cope with the misery of the next week. A way of life that says you get to determine who you are. You get to determine what's right and wrong. In fact, your inward feelings define most fundamentally who you are as a human being. And that's perhaps, maybe it's not the dominant narrative in our society right now, but it's certainly the loudest that you are a sovereign self and you are an authority unto yourself, getting to decide what God is like, who you are, what your place is in the world, and, and so forth. And Peter is helping us understand that all of these human inventions, all of these ways of life that we have come up with are, are simply futile. And we cannot cope in a world where we are left to determine who God is, who we are and what our place is in this world. Did you see how the good news speaks directly to this issue? And there's this rising recognition today that one of the reasons anxiety and depression is through the roof, particularly among young people today, is because they're basically told, you've got to decide who you are. You've got to, you've got to figure it out and define yourself. And they're, they're paralyzed by all of the options before them. Well, friends, here's, here's a wonderful way the gospel speaks to our particular cultural moment. One of the things the gospel says to us is that God in his love for his people is absolutely determined to rescue his people, to ransom his people from ways of life that are useless in the end. He is determined to deliver his people from futility, to restore them to meaning and purpose, to set their feet on solid ground, and to give them a sense of the world as it really is. And so ransomed from futile ways of life. Now, I need to, I need to speed up here. Secondly, notice what we're ransomed with, right? By what means is this ransom affected? Take a look again at verse 18. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I mentioned this a few minutes ago, that this language of ransom, or sometimes translated redemption, comes from the slave markets of, of the Greco-Roman uh, world. Uh, here's, here's how this, this worked. A, a slave could be redeemed, and it, it, it typically occurred like this. A, a bond servant could make a payment to uh, a temple of a particular god or goddess, and then via that temple's treasury, a payment would be made to the slave master 
so that that slave would now, in the eyes of its master and wider society, would be seen as a freed man. But they were also now considered the slave of that particular god or goddess. And the, the fee that was paid the, the, was called the ransom. Uh, in Greek, it's teme. Now hang on just to the sound of that word, teme, for a minute. Because Peter is playing on that pagan custom, that awful custom that existed in the Greco-Roman world where men and women were, were bought and sold. But Peter plays on it and he says, Christians are ransomed. And he uses the passive tense in the Greek to make it absolutely clear Christians don't ransom themselves. This is something that's done to them. Something that someone else takes care of on their behalf. And then here's what's interesting though. Christians therefore are free. But then in chapter 2 he will also speak of Christians as slaves of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 16. Of course, that's not a return to another kind of bondage, but in fact, true freedom that Peter has in view. But here's here's the interesting thing as well. He says, we've been bought not with the teme, right, of silver and gold, but with the, I think a play on words, with the temeo, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter is not only playing here on a, a pagan cultural practice, he's, he's also explaining redemption in clearly Old Testament terms. And that shouldn't surprise us if you've been with us as we've, we've worked our way up to this point. We are ransomed, we are redeemed, not by perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a spotless lamb. Lambs were used, of course, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, But I think it's uh, more focused than that. I think Peter has in view the Passover lamb. Passover lamb that was to be offered as a a sacrifice, offered without spot or blemish, and whose blood was, in a sense, an act of atonement, symbolically speaking of really the one who was yet to come, and by whose perfect sacrifice our redemption would be secured. From, from sin and from bondage to futility. And when you think about it, the Israelites in Egypt and their experience of bondage and slavery was a picture, really, of the salvation that we experience through Jesus Christ. Redeemed from bondage to futility. Redeemed from tyranny and the oppression of the ways of this world. Set free to live and serve God. This is why when Jesus came to be baptized, when we get to the New Testament, you have to, you have to hear this theme um, just blaring when Jesus, for instance, is walking along the River Jordan and John the Baptist sets his eyes on Jesus. And what does he say? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's, it's why John says as Jesus is hanging from the tree that his bones were not broken. Because he wants you to understand that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. By the shedding of his blood redeems his people and brings them into 
freedom. It's why Paul will explicitly say Christ is our Passover lamb. And so again, here is a dimension of the the diamond of redemption that maybe we often fail to admire and we need to better appreciate. Yes, he's ransomed us from our sin, from, from sin's guilt and power. Amen. But he's also in his grace redeemed us from a life of vanity, life of emptiness, a life lived for the pursuit of things that in the end do not matter for eternity. And friends, we're, we're witnessing, I think, in our society, of course, rapid change. Some of those changes are good and encouraging, and some of them not so much. One of the things we're witnessing that's not very encouraging is the increasing inability to no longer even be able to make basic distinctions that are necessary for neighborly communal life. I'll give you an example of this. I was listening to a, a, a political uh, figure recently being interviewed, and some, some of you probably heard this, this language now of we, we shouldn't just talk about menstruating women. <laughs> Sorry to use this, this language, but that's what came up. But now we need to talk about menstruating people because it's, it's not just women who experience this sort of monthly cycle, but now you have others who maybe perhaps have the biology of a woman's body but do not identify as a woman. So we can't talk about women menstruating, it's menstruating people. As I listened to this interview, this is just two minutes long, that I listened to the person stumble all over their words and you could see the wheels turning because they're making sure they weren't contradicting themselves making sure they were properly qualifying things. And as I'm listening to it, the thought crossed my mind, this is, this is madness. This is, this is crazy. We've, 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 we're at the point where we, we can't even distinguish between male and female. And we need to understand that when you strike something that fundamental in society, that it's going to have profound implications for our public life and our, and our social life, we're going to increasingly see harm and disintegration. Now, I say that, I'm not saying that so this morning we can stick up our nose and, and speak with a, a, a judgmental attitude about what's going on in our culture right now, but to help us understand, dear brothers and sisters, there but by the grace of God go we. It's only by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ that we are rescued from these futile ways of life which can't make sense of the world we live in. And God in his love and his redeeming grace, his settled purpose is to restore us as his creatures to a life that is centered on him so that we can actually understand our place and our purpose in the world. It's one of the things Peter is helping us understand about the consequence of Christ's redeeming work for us. Ransomed from feudal ways of life, ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Taking it a step further though, now ransomed by. What, who, who did the ransoming? You might be thinking, well, that's an easy answer. You've just been talking about the, the precious blood of Christ. Well, hold on, because there's actually, I think, two parts to this answer. 
that we need to, we need, we need to appreciate. Uh, the first part is hinted at. I mentioned this earlier in, in, in verse 18. It's Peter speaking in the passive voice. He says, you were ransomed. Right? You didn't ransom yourself. You didn't do the ransoming. You didn't pay the price. This was done for you by another. Now, Peter here in verse 18 actually has, I think, God the Father in view. Because it was God the Father who provided the ransom price. And just reflect on that with me for a minute. Remember back in verse, thir- uh, verse 17, God the Father is, is judge. He's the impartial judge, the judge of all the earth. And the wonder of the gospel is that the just judge of all the earth is the one who provides the payment for our ransom. Think about that for a second. Isn't that amazing? The judge is the one who has provided the ransom price for us to be set free. It's glorious. And friends, it it totally obliterates one of the ways that the gospel is is distorted. You know what that is? It's this view of, of... God the Father that sees him as essentially angry and wrathful towards you. And on the other hand, Jesus is all love. And so Jesus has come to die on the cross to basically rest from the unwilling hands of God the Father, forgiveness and acceptance for you. What a a horrible, horrendous distortion of God and the gospel of God that is. The truth is that the cross is the Father's gift of love. It was the Father's love for you that delivered Christ up for your ransom. It was the Father who sent Jesus to obey, to bleed, and to die. It was the Father who offered the ransom price. That's the first part of the answer, but then the second part of the answer is, Of course, then, it was the son who paid the price, who paid the debt, offering, in the language of Hebrews here, offering himself through the Spirit to God as a sacrifice without blemish or spot. The ransom is the gift of the Father paid for by the Son. And look at how Peter describes it in our passage here. Because of the glory of his person, because of who he is, is both God and man. Well, we can say then that his blood is infinitely precious. In verse 20, we're we're told that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, that's the same language, the same language of being foreknown is language Peter used back in verse 2 to describe Christians when he said they are foreknown by the Father. And when we looked at that, we we saw that in the world of Scripture, foreknown really means foreloved. So Christian, you are are foreloved, but before you were foreloved in the electing purposes of the Father, the Son was foreloved, and you are foreloved in his beloved Son. Verse 20 says, this Son... This beloved son of the father was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He he came, he appeared, 
in the fullness of time for your sake. Now we, we need to stop and reflect on that for just a moment. That last part of verse 20, the language of for the sake of you. Don't, don't pass over that. Why did Jesus appear in his first coming? Why was he manifested in the last times? Why did he pour out his lifeblood as a ransom? Peter's answer, in shorthand, for the sake of you. That's his explanation, for your sake. There is, my friends, an offer made here from God himself for those who have been given the ears to hear it, that Jesus is for you. He, he obeyed, he bled, he died for you, for your sake. For, for, this, for your sake, the ransom price was paid. Ransomed from sin, redeemed from futile ways of living, ransomed by the Father in the gift of the Son. For loved he was, manifested in the fullness of time as the ransom price for our sake, brothers and sisters. And this same Jesus is held out in the gospel to be taken hold of freely by faith. So that we might be set free from sin and empty ways of living. Now finally, we need to go to this last part. Ransomed for in, in verse 20. What are we ransomed for? Take a look at the verse. He was manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that... Your faith and hope are in God. So ask yourself, what is the outcome of Christ being manifested in these last times? What is the outcome of Christ's life of obedience, his shed blood, his death, resurrection? What is uh, the, 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 the gift that the ascended Jesus now gives in glory? And notice what Peter says. Um, not, not just that you would believe in God. Look carefully at his language. He says, not just that you believe in Christ. He says, through him, as through Jesus, you are believers in God. This is kind of a dense section of Peter's writing, but I want you to slow down and think about that for a minute. Peter is saying that the faith that rests on God is through Jesus, who is manifested in the last time for our sake. And that means we've got to say that faith itself is the gift of redeeming grace, so that salvation from start to finish is all found in and through Jesus Christ. Because he is the fount, he is the source of all redeeming grace. Every part of your salvation, even the faith that it first believes, all of it is the gift of the Father to you, received through Jesus. So that we can say with Paul, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So let me wrap up here this morning just with, with a, a question 
and then an encouragement. And the first question I want to ask is, is simply this. Are you ransomed? Have you, have you been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ? Are you believing in God, setting your hope on Christ through Jesus Christ? Peter's reminding us here that God the Father has made a gift of him to you. That in the gospel, he's for you. He's for your sake. And the only right response to that is to acknowledge your sin. To to acknowledge that all of the ways of life that perhaps you've pursued in the past or you're currently pursuing are in the end what Peter calls useless. And what you need to do more than anything is to Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for redemption from sin and redemption from vanity. And if you have been ransomed, and yes, you, you can say, I've, I've been redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But here's my encouragement to you. Don't think that once you make that confession, once you recognize that for yourself, that then you go on to greater, deeper things. (laughs) Now, this is actually where we stay as Christians. This is our focus. We keep our eyes fixed upon Calvary, upon the precious blood that was shed to take away our sins, because as Peter's teaching us here, it's out of the soil of Calvary, surrounding Calvary, in which godly fear grows And develops in the Christian life. Godly godly fear is the result of knowing how and just how much you are loved in the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, if you want to grow in godly fear and and learn to say with the psalmist, you know, um, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Happy is the one who fears the Lord, the direction of Scripture is look no further than Calvary. Because Christian or not, Christ is the answer to the deepest needs of your heart. Christ is the answer to the deepest needs that all of us in this room have this morning. So look to the Lord Jesus, who is for your sake. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now that by the imperishable seed of your word, that some might be born anew to a living hope this morning. And we pray that those who have by your word implanted been born again to new life in Jesus Christ as we gaze upon the cross and remember the precious blood of Jesus shed to redeem us from sin and from futility, that we might grow in a right fear of you that would shape and form how we conduct ourselves in this world. Help us in our entire lives, public and private, to live to the glory of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.